I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where the Iron Curtain descends on popular misconception, where myth is anything but quietly disappeared from society. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my loyal co-host and very own Tinker Taylor reader and academic, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear ragers, we are going back to the potentially murky and paranoid days of the Cold War. And guiding us on this trip into the cold, as it were, we are joined by author, historian and returning rager, Katya Hoyer. Katya, welcome back to History Rage. Hello, it's brilliant to be back. That that was an awful lot of Cold War metaphors you managed to cram into the <laughs> the opening lines. Not even close <laughs> how far I could go on that. You can see this is why Kyle's turned his camera off and is just cringing behind there. So at the time of our last recording, you were in the process of writing Beyond the Wall. And now it's out. Um, I've read it. I've listened to it. I thoroughly loved it, uh, partly because... I grew up in that period, so I could relate to it an awful lot more than I could relate to pre-Second World War Prussia. But how's it been going for you? Yeah, it's been been quite mad, really. It went quite well in, in Britain, where it's been well-received and, and sold quite well. And then it completely exploded in Germany, where it's caused a lot of controversy. I think a little bit of that was to be anticipated, but I hadn't quite foreseen the this, the scale of it, there, there's now a debate that's named after me. So that's one tick off the bucket. Which oh, there's God. now a Hoya debate, which, yeah, I hadn't quite anticipated, but <laughs> at least people talk about the topic again and it's, it's become a, you know, a public debate again. So no, I'm, I'm pleased with that. It's, it's a good thing. I think it's something that Germany does need to talk about. And if I could make a little mm. contribution to that, then that's no bad thing. Oh, well, uh, we, we will brace ourselves for most of Germany coming back to complain at us then. You know, water off a duck's back for us. But it, it's gone out. It, it seems to have gone very well. If I could just kind of ask, what inspired you to write it? Two reasons, really. So one is the fact that I was actually born in the GDR still, just about. So I was four years old when the Berlin Wall fell. And it's odd to be born or, or having been born into a country that 
doesn't exist anymore. So you kind of look up your birthplace mm. and it just isn't on a map anymore. And you always kind of wonder, you know, what would life have been like if you'd been born, say, 10, 15, 20 years earlier? What would you have made of that? state what was it like you know it's kind of like the thing that made you is gone so there was a personal interest there and, and kind of exploring it as a historian if I couldn't do it as a person and the other thing was that I wanted to kind of make a contribution to the idea that that East Germany is part of German history it's not kind of just some side strand or a footnote to it but you know this was over 40 years of of German history and it's often just kind of written out or forgotten about there's a lot on you know, the First World War, Weimar, the Nazis, and, and all of those things combined are still not as long a time period as, as the 41 years that East Germany existed. And so as a historian, I felt, you know, this is part of the of the kind of German story, as it were, and, and one that needs to be written into it. Yeah, and this leads us quite nicely into into today's topic then, because like you say, there's 40 years of East Germany there, and we get told some things about it but if you would like to tell our uh baying mob out there what is it that's annoying the hell out of you today the fact that i can do what i want say what i want and write what i want and the idea that east germany was just Stasiland still doesn't go away it's something that that people <laughs> just cannot get out of their minds i understand that it's fascinating and i understand that you know this is a, a huge part obviously of the lives of people in, in east germany but it wasn't the only part people didn't sit there for like 41 years and and waited to be liberated whilst they lived in a gray drab world that had no joys no pleasures nothing to do you know it's, it's not like in 1940 nine people were kind of suddenly in, in this kind of prison and then they, they were happily liberated in, in 1989 and, and lived happily ever after. It's a lot more complicated and complex than that. And it seems that no matter how often I tell people about different strands of life or, or what was going on, that that is still a, a thing. I'm still getting journalists writing to me saying, can you write an article about Stasiland, meaning, you know, write something about East Germany, basically. And I know that's meant as a joke, but it's still grating a lot and I know I'm not the only sort of person from East Germany that that feels that way there there are millions of Germans there's there's another book out in in Germany at the moment which is also a a bestseller which basically just rants about how East Germans are treated in in Germany on the whole so maybe you should get that guy on next as well he'd probably be even angrier than than I am so Excellent. yeah, that's basically my my rant is about the fact that East Germany was more than than the wall and more than the Stasi. Yeah, and and not this grey, depressing, poverty stricken place without running water or electric or everything else that the Cold War propaganda throws at you. Well, there is there is some truth to that. You know, nobody is saying that it was paradise on on Earth, and it isn't my task to kind of rewrite this history and make it make it a nicer place than it was. It's kind of adding a little bit of complexity to it. And that's not necessarily to kind of reevaluate the state or the political structures. The the point is that it kind of makes those millions of East Germans who lived there into sheep, effectively, people who were just there and didn't do anything during that time, like passive, you know, kind of Cold War caricatures. And I think that's part of the reason that you still see a lot of anger and, and acrimony today within Germany is that people feel like their lives and their backgrounds and their identity has been eroded and belittled. And, and that's still very much the case. Okay, so let's dig into that a little bit. Now, I actually went into East Berlin 
twice. Uh, once in 1988 when the wall was up, and then also in 1990 after the wall had come down. And at that point, the two halves were very, very different cities. But London isn't England, Paris isn't France, and I suspect that Berlin, East Berlin, is not the rest of East Germany either. So, you know, how what was the rest of East Germany like compared to what, sort of what we would see in East Berlin? Yeah, I mean, lots of people had your experience. So I, I hear that particularly from Brits a lot, that basically they went over, you know, often on a day trip from, from West Berlin to East Berlin and, and back again. That can be because they were stationed, you know, in the West as, as soldiers or some people even went on school trips and things. So it's quite common to sort of, you know, visit East Germany and then just see East Berlin. The, what I was trying to do, well, one of the things I was trying to do with the book is just that's that's one dimension of it is kind of just open up the geographical range. So I try to talk about the whole geographical range going to the Baltic coast in the north. People forget that there's like a beautiful coastline there that people went on on holiday. There is those infamous nudist beaches that <laughs> existed there. They're all up in the north. There's mountainous areas in Thuringia and things. So that it's it's a lot bigger than that. And in the in the villages in particular, it was also a lot harder often for you know, the, the arm of the state basically to do much about what people were doing. So there was some room to, to retreat, basically. But equally, many people who were, you know, opposition people or wanted to kind of be dissidents, they quite often flocked to East Berlin as well, because there was a, a scene there, a community there, it was easier to, you know, network basically with other people. And so it's it's quite a unique place, East Berlin, within East Germany. Having said that, physically, if you kind of talk about the differences between East and West and what you would have seen going going over basically during the Cold War, the rest mm. of East Germany also looked pretty horrendous. I mean, there's no getting around that. Basically, what happened was that the old buildings that still existed, you know, kind of nice timber frame buildings and things like that from previous eras, were often left to decay. To start with, there were just no building materials because East Germany was the poorer half of the two and really, really struggled to get housing and things like that going. And then later on, it was decided, because those kind of massive prefab building blocks were, were put up on the outskirts of cities, that the inside, the, the, the old historic cores, basically, of the, of the town centres, were quite often deliberately left to decay so that they could then be replaced with kind of more socialist town plan, planning. And in the meantime, it just looked horrendous. And even people who lived in East Germany... And look at kind of some of their pictures now. They they've half forgotten how bad it actually looked. And you know you look at it again now and you think, God, that was quite decrepit. So that that is indeed something that most people notice is that you did come over and it just looked like like the place was decaying basically because there wasn't um, that wasn't the priority and, and the houses were deliberately left to decay whilst new buildings were being put up. I remember from going over myself that you would see, uh, and this is just East Berlin, I can't speak for the rest of East Germany, apart from the bit of it that I drove through to get to Berlin. But you would still see a kind of war damage in the buildings still there as late as the, uh, as late as the 80s. Was that typical of the rest of the cities that were around East Germany as well? It depended a bit. I mean, a lot of the, the bigger cities were quite badly damaged during the um, Second World War, so Dresden being the obvious example, um, where literally, you know, the town was pretty much razed, um, and had to be rebuilt. So there, there in places like that, that would less be the case because basically most of the buildings weren't there in any case. So it was a question of clearing up the, 
the rubble and then rebuilding the cities, although Dresden is also a good example of how long it took to restore some of the historical buildings. The Opera House, for example, in, in Dresden, the, the famous one that most people associate with it, the, the Zwinger Oper, which is kind of the you know symbol of, of Dresden, really, that was actually restored during the GDR years, but they were only finished with it in 1985, in the 80s at some point. So it did take a while, and, and that was indeed the case in, in several cities. So yes, you would see you know war damage still. Churches in particular were often, and again, Dresden is a good example of that with the Frauenkirche, the, the famous church there, which was just left as a kind of war memorial, you know, as the way that it was put, kind of the idea that you leave it there as a, a symbol of what happened in the way that Hamburg did as well, by the way. So one of the destroyed churches in Hamburg is, is still there as well in its kind of black and charred skeletal remains because it's supposed to be a, a kind of reminder of what happened there. Um, but most of the time it was just because they couldn't afford to to do it up and restore buildings. And so this is a question from A.D. Bond, one of our Patreon supporters. Hello, A.D. <laughs> Hello, A.D. <laughs> Was there anything that East Germany did better than West Germany? Uh, and this is A.D. saying this, apart from drug-enhanced Olympic victories. <laughs> well, there's certainly one part there. Mm. <laughs> no, but yeah, there were a few things, I think, that have kind of all been thrown out, really, at unification. You know, the, the infamous baby with the bathwater kind of situation. One of them being the the role of women in society, and this is something that that really was a big difference between East and West. So by the end of the GDR's existence, it had the highest rate of female employment ever really achieved in the world, as nearly all women were in full employment over 90%. And that wasn't something, as is often claimed, you know, where women were kind of dragged out of their houses and chained to machines and factories. But what made that work was that there was a really extensive a system of childcare and also really supportive measures to try and allow people, women, to to study, to work, to progress in their career and have a child or several children at the same time. And that was just made possible because basically there was huge subsidies and, and state effort involved in that. So to give you an example, my mum was still studying in Dresden when, when I was born. She was in her final year at university. And it seems now, you know, from our perspective today, unthinkable to kind of do that and have a small child that was like a newborn child at the same time and they just had childcare there at the university campus so she had a few months off basically and then returned and the way that that worked is you'd, you'd get into the tram in the morning with me as a, as a baby <laughs> and literally put me there was like childcare sort of near the campus and you just leave the the pram there like a delivery kind of you know situation <laughs> They'd, they'd pick the babies up, basically look after them during the day or however long the lecture took that she was going to. And on the way back, she could pick me back up and, and live on campus as well in sort of mother and child type accommodation. So that, that worked really well. And she could continue and, and finish her studies there as opposed to, you know, interrupting her career. And as a result of that, you have a huge like cultural shift as well. It was just kind of expected for children to help in the household and to, you know, help with cleaning and shopping and stuff like that. Because both of your parents worked usually full time as well. So there were all of these propaganda child songs where you had to sort of sing in kindergarten how when you get home, you're going to help your mummy and daddy in the household. And then you'll go and buy some butter and milk for them and that kind of thing, because you were just kind of growing up more quickly because you had to. So these things were 
pretty much discarded basically at unification when childcare, it was immediately decided it was too expensive and so it was cut down. And lots of women were unemployed in the 90s and early 2000s because they didn't know how to, how to bridge that anymore, which is exactly a problem that we still have today. So that I would say yeah. is probably one of the big things. It's kind of the social progress kind of stuff that was actively encouraged by the state. They also got more working class kids into universities and that did come at some detriment to the middle classes. But when you look at West Germany, there was still only 5% or so of, of university students actually came from working class backgrounds in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. Whilst in, in East Germany, the, the figure was much higher because basically that was encouraged. And, and people like my mother is a classic example again of that, who was sort of picked out as a, as a clever working class girl in her class and therefore, you know, pushed basically even against the will of her parents who were both factory workers. And said she, she, she should be doing a proper job and, you know, earn some money rather than go and study for years, that kind of thing. And the state kind of pushed it through against, against those reservations. And those are, I think, examples of things that had a legacy really of doing something good. And you still see that yeah. today. So when you look at East and West, the gender pay gap in the East is much, much smaller than it is in the West. In terms of in terms of developing things, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but does the didn't the East kind of get domestic refrigeration well in advance of the West as well? Which which to anybody any woman there that's not working and is looking after the house on her own is going to be an absolute godsend. Yeah, that was one of the big propaganda coups. So they did manage that for a certain amount of time. They were ahead on fridges, whilst. On the whole, you know, the rules still applied that anything that was like appliances was normally, you know, very in, in very high demand and, and very hard to come by and, and only two or three models were available. But fridges, yes, they were ahead for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one of the questions that I've curious questions I've always had with East Germany and and with some other communist and almost communist states is it is really how do they get away with the D in GDR? In the book you describe a very curious voting system that I wouldn't necessarily point to as being democratic. But can you give us an insight into that? Because I thought that was that was one of my favourite parts of the book. Yeah, so the the state had kind of made a great effort to make it look as though it was democratic. To start with, they actually had to have the constitution set out so that it could still be reunited with West Germany. So both states did that. They both said that their constitution is temporary, East and West Germany, until unification, because neither wanted to look like it was the state that you know, was to blame basically for German division because it was it was so deeply unpopular. And so both of them mm. on paper actually look quite similar. So that meant that East Germany also had to pretend that it was a multi-party state um, where you have an option when you go voting what parties to vote for. And so men, not many people know this, but it was actually a multi-party state right to the end, even though that it was a bit farcical, as I'll, I'll explain in a moment. Um, but basically, there were several political parties, including, um, for instance, a, a Christian Democratic Party. Um, there was a, a Farmers Party. Um, so there were there were different uh, political parties in in theory on paper. Um, but the problem was that when you went voting, it wasn't about increasing the vote share for any of those parties. So you couldn't go in, the, in there and say, I want to vote for the Christian Democratic Party rather than the ruling SED party, the Socialist Party. What you did is you, you went into the voting office and you were given a list with the names of all the candidates printed on it. 
they were from different political parties, but they were all already printed on the thing. And then you couldn't kind of choose some, but not others. You couldn't say, yeah, I like this guy, but but I don't want this woman in or whatever. There, there was no choice. You basically accepted the list as it was by folding the piece of paper and then putting the piece of paper straight back into the ballot box. So this was so ridiculous, this process, because you basically didn't get to choose anything other than to go into the thing, to in, to go into the voting booth and, and fold the piece of paper and put it in the box. That basically people called it paper folding rather than voting. They'd say to their neighbours, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just off paper folding, you know, when it was voting day, because it was just a farcical procedure to kind of go through this, you know, process. And then the government would announce you know, proudly on TV that it had 99 point whatever percent approval ratings this time. The only way that you could vote against what the government suggested, that list of candidates that was already set, was that if you took a pencil and a ruler and you took that piece of paper and rather than folding it in front of the people sitting there, you could take it away behind the curtain as you would normally do. (laughs) But that obviously already made you extremely suspicious because why would you do that uh, into the ballot box? You could take it away and then neatly cross out, like with your pencil ruler, every single name that's on it. And then it would count as a vote, in theory anyway. Quite often there, there were suspicions that even those weren't counted properly. But then in theory you had voted against th- that list. Whilst if, say, yeah. you're only crossing out five names of the however many are on there, it still counts as a yes to the entire list, including those that you've crossed out. So it is a completely farcical process because basically the seats were already set in place. So say the Christian Democratic Party or the Liberals or the Farmers Party, they would also all get seats. But it was later written into the Constitution that the the Socialist Party, the ruling party, the SED, runs the country and everything goes through it. And, and the other parties only get a few seats, fewer in number. Parliament doesn't really get to decide anything in any case, so it doesn't even matter, really. To give you an example, Eric Mielke, the head of the Stasi, was one of the parliamentarians, in inverted commas, in that parliament. And he never, he'd never addressed parliament right until the very end when after the fall of the Berlin Wall, he had to justify himself in front of that parliament that kind of just existed but didn't really do anything. And so, you know, that's effectively how they got the D in there, is by, by doing those things. <laughs> I mean, there, there is a theory on paper, and this is part of the kind of idea of communism, is that there's a central kind of socialist democracy. So the idea is that you don't vote for different political parties because that splits society. And they basically claim that capitalism does that on purpose as the kind of divide and conquer sort of logic. Whilst in communism, what happens is you vote directly for candidates and therefore they're all from the same party and then the candidates work together to work policies out. That's in theory the the democratic part, but in practice it, it turns into dictatorships. Yeah, so I'm thinking that the at least in theory, you've got you can actually, in theory at least, select which communists that you want to be running the country yeah, but but they're they're all going to be communists yeah, and pre-selected through cadre systems and you know they, they were actually there was a whole thought process how you recruit new kind of politicians and elites and and people in leading positions and and you get a choice between you know like for like kind of people that were pre-chosen and, and pre-groomed to be in those positions 
<laughs> you know, it's it's almost like the politicians we have now. They're all pretty <laughs> identical. You could just get to change the numbers, you know, how progressive. Just going back to a couple of things that, well, one thing that you mentioned there and one thing that was in the book. So you mentioned that when you go in, when you go to vote or go to fold this paper, this isn't a secret thing. You're actually doing it in front of in front of what could be best described as a socialist scrutiny board. Yeah, I mean, you can in theory. There's there, there's meant to be a box somewhere or like a curtain or something that you can go behind. But the moment you do that, you're kind of admitting that you're not just folding the piece of paper that you intend to cross out some of those names or all of those names, and you immediately make that you know, public knowledge, not just in front of the, the, the socialist scrutiny board, as you've called them, but also other people who might be in there, you know, like your neighbours and your colleagues and whatever. I mean, it, it is an incredibly intimidating, or can be anyway, if you if you decide to do that. When I spoke to people, bizarrely, you know, it's easy to forget that people weren't used to democracy in any shape or form. They, they just, a lot of people just didn't care. To start with, that changes later in the in the 80s, which is why you, you see those kind of, you know, uprisings and things to begin to grow mm-hmm. but when i spoke to all the people and i said like why did that not bother you and they said that was just the way things were like if you're born in say 1955 you know in the gdr and you haven't actually seen anything else or even if you were older then you've seen the nazis and before that you would have seen a dysfunctional you know weimar democracy that didn't work and that everybody was was fed up with and before that, there was the First World War, which is, you know, which ran under a so-called silent dictatorship, under a military dictatorship as well. So there were literally, you know, apart from very old people who may have had some recollection of what it was like to vote before the First World War, and that was only half a democracy as well, people didn't really expect that sort of thing because it was just never a thing. What people wanted is stability, they wanted housing, they wanted somewhere to live, they wanted a job, they wanted to, you know, lead a, a decent standard of living. And all the while the government could provide that, most people kind of quietly went along with this rather than actually being particularly upset about this. It's, it's yeah. hard to imagine from our point of view today, I think. Yeah, but I suppose if you yeah, if you put it like that, if your experience and knowledge of democracy has been the Nazis being effectively voted in through through that democratic system, the Weimar collapsing everything you you might start to think that actually this democracy is a bad idea or alternatively a lot like many people feel today is that we don't actually care which party you are just freaking sort it out yeah and people sorry just on that note people could say and you know imagine sort of in 10 15 years time we have several options that are all quite appealing on the ballot paper and, and people get a genuine all of those people who are currently politically homeless get a genuine choice you might then also look back and say, how did people deal with the situation that they had two political parties to choose from? They didn't want either. And in effect, they, they go and vote, you know, with their uh, kind of, you know, with their nose held or, or not at all. The amount of people that don't go voting, you know, in, in most states, you've got, what, 60, 70 percent turnout at best. You could ask, you know, how is it? <laughs> how is that acceptable? And if, as I say, we're ever in an ideal situation where everybody goes voting because everyone cares and there is a genuine choice then maybe we look back at the times now and we want i'm not comparing that at all obviously we've got a free press and freedom of expression mm. and all the rest of it but in terms of the the way that people thought about it i think it's not too different from disgruntled people today who will just kind of swallow their anger and get on with their lives and and not think about politics every day i think that's how they got away with that for such a long time in the gdr yeah i suppose if you look at the uk as well i mean sort of like 
parliamentary representative democracy with, with a universal franchise is even now less than 100 years old. You know, back then, it's, yeah, doesn't even bear thinking about. Yeah, we like to think that we've got, we like to think that, our, you know, the way that we've got is the best way, but is it? But that's a debate for the rest is politics. So yeah, <laughs> they, they can sort that out. Other thing I wanted to mention was a bit that you highlighted in the book that particularly touched me is that when they're setting up this system of government and choice in big inverted commas, is does somebody actually use the phrase, look, you've got to at least make it look democratic? Yeah, that's, they know that's what they're somebody doing. is the the leader, basically. So that's that's Walter <laughs> yeah. Albrecht who who ran the the state for for two decades, roughly, as the 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 general secretary of the of the ruling party. And he is basically he spends the war in Russia and Moscow as a as a communist German communist refugee, of whom there were many. Well, refugee, if you will, basically, he was politically, of course persecuted by the Nazis and therefore, like many other communists, German communists, fled to Russia. And then at the end of the war, Stalin decided it was best if German communists kind of started setting things up in, in his zone of occupation, which was in the East. And Walter Albrecht was one of those people that was still around, hadn't been killed by Stalin's paranoid purges and, and basically managed to still be there and had proved in that time to Stalin that he was absolutely... 100% loyal of whatever Stalin wanted, he'd do it. And so he was sent back in. And under those circumstances, he basically said that in that time when, when he was supposed to set up structures in Germany, he said to his comrades, remember, it has to look democratic, but everything has to be in our hands. Because basically what they did is they tried to make it look to socialists and social democrats and liberals and church people, everybody basically who had been opposed to Nazism, that this is going to be a broad anti-fascist front that they're going to set up. So anybody who wasn't a Nazi is allowed in. And in order to do that, incredibly, he had to make it look democratic. And so lots of these people were initially actually put into positions, you know, like town mayor or, or they'd kind of run a, a council somewhere or whatever. These people weren't communists because Walter Albrecht had to make it look as though they were all included. But their deputies were always communists and those were the people who really had the strings in mm. their hands basically so it looked democratic if you had say a, a social democratic mayor of a town somewhere but really it was the communists behind the scenes who were pulling the strings and if the the mayor wouldn't play along then he'd very quickly find out that there were consequences to that and and they'd end up in in a camp worst case scenario one of the NKVDs of the Soviet secret police camps that are set up it, by the way, in old Nazi concentration camps, I mean, the, the thought of that is just shocking and it tells you everything about the paranoia that's there from the beginning, that they basically used places like Sachsenhausen and Buchenwald that the Nazis had used to incarcerate these people. But basically, the, the democratic front was there from the beginning and they tried to make it look as though it was, even though, of course, behind the scenes, they had everything in their hands. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Obviously, we're trying to get away from the idea of East Germany being Stasiland, but we kind of have to talk about them, given what we've just been mentioning. Do they deserve the reputation? And how do they go about being so ruthlessly efficient in a state that seems anything but efficient? Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to get away from the idea that the Stasi, you know, was huge. I mean, the the East German system was arguably the most comprehensive surveillance state that has ever existed in history. It's quite remarkable at the end. The Stasi, the secret police and the kind of state security uh, has got 91,000 full employees. And on top of that, literally millions of informants. So these are ordinary citizen spies, if you will, people who are spying on behalf of the Stasi, on their neighbours, their husbands, their colleagues, anybody really that, that's around them. So that, that really is a big thing, and that's why it's, it's got the reputation that it has. Um, so from that angle, absolutely, the, the reputation is deserved. And the way that they did that is basically they had a budget that way outnumbered and outgrew all of the other government departments. So to give you an example, when they built the Berlin Wall in 1961 and thereby basically closed the last bit of the border between East and West off. Before that, you could still move from East Germany into West Germany by basically going to Berlin, walking over, and then, then taking a, a train, for instance, out of West Berlin into, into the West, and that was still safe and legal to do. And so basically the, the Stasi boss, Erich Mielke, used that to justify why he needed extortionate funds to set up his, his secret police. And then once that was closed, the government, different government departments said to, to, to him, look, you know, there's no justification anymore for your massive security state because we've, we've closed that last gap now. Berlin was a city of spies, but look, now we've got control over who's coming in and out. So what's your point, basically? Why, why are you still here and why are you demanding so much money? And Mirko kind of cleverly just sat that time period out and, and kind of stagnated his funds, whilst all the other government departments, because of the difficult economic situation, had to be cut back. So things like, you know, house building and, and social stuff, all of that was cut back because there wasn't enough money for it. And Mirko kind of just, you know, sat there and, and had his, had his budget, yeah, stagnating rather than cut. And then once the paranoia that is so intrinsic in that state, it's always there. The, the government and the the ministers and the elites are always concerned of or kind of worried, scared really of their own population, that they would do something against them. Mirka was incredibly intelligent as a as a human person, even as a even as a boy, his teachers kind of write that in the reports in the nineteen um, twenties and, and a bit earlier, sorry, but basically in the, in his youth, even his teachers were, were saying that he was incredibly clever in the way that he chooses his words and the way that he can read other people. And he, he sensed every time there was one of these waves of paranoia. You see the same with Stalin, by the way, and then Soviet Russia as well goes through the elites. He is there and he says, look, I'll protect you. I know what's going on. I'll, I'll keep the state and the, and the government safe. And the Stasi actually called itself the, the sword and shield of the party. So that's what, what it did. And that's why they got so much funding. 
and disproportionate funding. And the older Milka got, he didn't, he didn't change. He got worse and worse, basically. I mean, at one point, he started collating evidence against the leader, Eric Honecker, who, who led the GDR throughout the second half, famously in a sort of red suitcase that was found after the, after the war came down, where he basically collated things like when Honecker was in prison, for example, during the Nazi era, his dad had tried to bail him out by saying he isn't really a communist anymore, he's kind of arranged himself with the fascist state. And those statements, Mirka kept, you know, in case he ever has to prove that Honecker is really a fascist at heart, or some funds that were misappropriated that, that Honecker had allegedly used to buy his mistress a little bungalow somewhere by a lake, and those kinds of things, you know, and you're just, you're just wondering what's going on there. If, if the if somebody who's supposed to be a minister in one department is actually collating evidence against the guy who runs everything, you know, you kind of get to see how much control he had, even over the government. He ran the entire settlement where they lived. They lived in a little sort of forest settlement that was cut off from the rest of the state, again, because of this paranoia thing. And Mirko ran the whole thing. He guarded it. You know, everybody who was in that settlement, from the bakers to the hairdressers to the, to the butchers there, they were all Stasi people. So guess what happens when Margot Honecker, the, the wife of the leader, goes to the hairdresser and sits there and moans about something or other? The information goes <laughs> straight to, you know, to Mirko. So he controlled everything and everyone in that state, including the government itself. And that's, that explains the extent of the surveillance state, the amount of money that was spent on it that is so disproportionate to anything else that's going on in the state. I mean, a little bit of a question on society that kind of links into that. You mentioned earlier that the, the, the Soviets have always got their people there. Uh, the communists have always got their people there. How much are the Soviets pulling the strings? And also, if you've got all these millions of people out there that are acting as Stasi informants, is there, is there a sizable element, nay, possibly even a majority of the East German population that actually views East Germany as this grand project that they want to see come to fruition, as opposed to something be uh, oppressive that is forced on them? Yeah, so they're two separate questions, really. As for the for the Soviets, I try to follow this a little bit in the book as as one of the strands because we that's another cliche about East Germany is that it's basically just a Russian colony and it's kind of run by by the Soviets, and that just isn't the case. I mean, there's always the, the problem for East Germany that it, it economically depends on on the Soviets. Its problem is that, especially at the beginning, East Ger- West Germany basically imposes a like an embargo on East Germany. They, it's called the Hallstein Doctrine. They basically say that anybody who wants to trade with Germany chooses between East and West. So say if Britain wanted to, to deal with both Germanys, West Germany would then say, if you're dealing with the East, we're not dealing with you. And the fact that, you know, as in trading and, and diplomatic relations and things. And that then obviously meant that nobody was going to, you know, spite the, the mighty West German export economy if you wanted your Bosch washing machines and your <laughs> Mercedes and, and whatnot. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. So it was cut off effectively from the West because of that. So anything that needed to be imported, and that's a lot if you're a tiny little flat country built on sand, you know, from like <laughs> exotic fruit to energy, oil, gas, they, they needed to import a lot of stuff. They were always reliant on the Soviet Union to to make that work. And if they turned around as they did, for instance, after the oil crises in the 70s, and said, look, we, we can't send you the stuff anymore that we promised you, then that would have a huge impact on the East German economy. That's kind of what what wrecked it, or what gave it kind of the, the kiss of death, if you will, in the in the 80s. 
So there is that, and they do need to go crawling back to Moscow and ask for permission for all sorts of things. Also, for instance, when, when Ulbricht gets deposed and Honecker comes in, Honecker actually talks to the Soviets about that and makes sure that they're happy with, with the idea that, that he's replacing Ulbricht. But there's also a huge amount of, I'd say, German arrogance going on as well, where the German socialists are beginning to think that they do it better than everybody else, and that includes the Soviets. <laughs> so you have Walter Ulbricht in particular starts lecturing the Soviet leadership. Every time they come to Germany, he, he kind of points at the living standards, which were the highest in the Eastern Bloc, but he kind of points at that and says, well, look, you know how good our socialism is working, and, and I can always send some experts over to help you with yours kind of thing and and they they become very very frustrated with that um Brezhnev in particular is absolutely livid when he when he comes to uh, to um Ulbricht's um kind of hunting lodge and and is expecting a nice weekend out in the woods boar hunting and not only is is Ulbricht um not very good at hunting and doesn't like it and so it just he kind of just farms him off on on his deputy at the time on Honecker but he also lectures him nonstop about East German socialism, the superiority of it, and you get that a lot throughout as well. And Honecker's relationship in the end completely breaks down when Gorbachev comes into power in 1985 and basically wants reform. And Honecker says, "Well, I mean, the way that they phrased it as well in the media was basically just because they're they're doing up their well, if if your neighbor's doing up their flat, does that have to mean that you have to do yours as well?" sort of thing, you know, kind of renovating and, and they're, they're not doing it. And then effectively Honecker says that he wants socialism in the colours of the GDR, meaning the German colours. There's a German form of, of kind of socialism there to be had. And that's always the tension between Moscow and, and East Berlin that isn't to be underestimated. As to whether people believed in the state as well, they, they did, I think, some people. I would say it's probably a truth throughout history that you probably have about 10% or so of people who are really enthusiastic about what the government is doing and want to do the <laughs> same thing. And then there are 10% who hate everything and will go out onto the streets and demonstrate and, and sabotage and, and, you know, be opposition leaders. And then there's the bulk, the 80% in the middle who kind of grumble and get on with their lives. And I think that that is a truth that you see in East Germany as well. Um, there, there are obviously the you know kind of hardcore socialists and all elements of life. You you get people like that run a factory or, you know, it could be teachers or or whatever. But equally, you get lots of people in the in the very same positions who kind of just get on with their jobs and and their teachers because they want to be teachers and their factory leaders because they want to be factory leaders. So there is that. A lot of people certainly believe that after 1990 came about and they kind of saw that the idealized form of western capitalism that they'd imagined you know because they sit there basically watching west german tv um you kind of imagine a world through adverts i mean imagine you you didn't know what britain was like and you just looked at tv adverts you get a completely slow and and, and kind of tv series and things like that so you're sort of hmm. watching i don't know holly oaks and shampoo adverts and then you try and work out from that <laughs> what british society is like you get a <laughs> and to be fair where i live is very much like the last of the summer wine <laughs> Oh, there you go. <laughs> Maybe they, they get a more accurate picture now. <laughs> but yeah, they. I mean, that's the thing. And then suddenly, you know, your your entire way of life changes and you hadn't really quite worked out that there's mass unemployment, for example, which isn't something that, you know, you can work out from the shiny world of, of television or the fact that you might not know where the money comes from for the rent, you know, next month. So those things, I would say, in hindsight, some people... 
that felt that they'd lost out through reunification, looked at that and thought, you know, maybe my life was more stable or more safe or more secure in that, in that little world that was the GDR. Because if you arranged yourself with the state, you could live in it comparatively comfortably because mm-hmm. you didn't have to worry about these kind of existential questions, economic questions. Most of the stuff that you needed from day to day, be that your your rent, your food, even your holidays, you know, those kinds of things were, were subsidized. And so there, there wasn't really a concern whether you could take your family on holiday or not, certainly not in the 70s or 80s. You just you just did that. You applied for your, your work and you'd get a subsidized kind of holiday places and things. You wouldn't go every year and you wouldn't obviously go outside of the the Eastern Bloc, but that wasn't something that, that was a concern if you if you were happy with that little world that you lived in. So it completely depended on you know what sort of person you are and what sort of life you want to lead. The moment you put your head above the parapet, it became oppressive. But not everybody wanted to live that sort of life. If you were happy with your little, you know, world, with your garden, with your little job, with with the holiday at the Baltic Sea, then then you were okay. Yeah. Then why fight it? Yeah. Every time that we see kind of the GDR portrayed in Western television as well, it's always it it's always cues and shortages, and and you can't have the things you want, which I imagine is there to specifically to contrast with, with with life in the west i think classic example deutschland 86 absolute bagging example of what i'm talking about here i mean what was it like in terms of you know were there cues for even the basics i mean there was a permanent shortage of things so for example if your car broke down and you needed some sort of a place. I mean, most of the time you just try and fix it by yourself mm-hmm. because they were so like simple and, you know, uh, basic in any case, the cars are the two stroke Trabant engines. Um, but if you needed a replacement part for anything, it could often take weeks and months and it needed a lot of connections, sometimes Western currency, you know, to get hold of these things. Or you had very generous Western relatives who would send you it, whatever you needed or, or money to get it. And the GDR gave... How available are Trabant parts in the West? <laughs> well, whatever it was, really. I mean, you know, whether that, that could be something quite generic if you just needed a, a yeah. piece of, I don't know, metal, you know, steel tube or something to make an exhaust with or whatever, you would then manufacture that yourself. But the the government knew that as well, and it was deliberately trying to to, to use that for, to its own advantage. So there was a bizarre situation where, the, where a government-run, a state-run company called Gearnex set up a, a catalogue system and if you were a Western uncle and you wanted to do your your nephew in the East a, a favour, you'd pick up a Gearnex catalogue and it had all sorts of things in it from Walkman, you know, kind of devices uh, to uh, cars even. You could buy someone a car through that catalogue or even just very basic things like toys, clothes, cosmetics, whatever. And you basically ordered that in the West paid the money for it as you would do through normal kind of mail order catalog mm-hmm. system. And then that would be sent to your relatives in the East. So the, the system was automatically set up and this was the, the East German state running this. You could buy like whole packages. So for instance, at Christmas, there was like a, a Christmas package that was already kind of pre-selected with, you know, cosmetics and shampoo and all sorts of things in it uh, that you could just select if you were too lazy to <laughs> to sort of decide what to what to send your Eastern relatives for Christmas. And the state actually made money with these shortages. It knew perfectly well that this was only for the people who had relatives in the West with the means and, and of course, the inclination to to do that, that this couldn't be for everybody. 
And then it also set up shops, so-called intershops, they were called, which basically yeah. sold Western goods in East Germany. They were originally only there in case Western people came over, say, for the trade fair or for journalistic purposes or whatever. They were actually there for Western visitors. So originally they were just at like stations and airports and things. And with Western currency, you could then buy stuff in these shops that wasn't available in the GDR. And then they quickly worked out, people quickly worked out that if they got their Western relatives to bring them some Deutschmarks or even some Western currency, they could also go to these shops and buy things like coffee or a chocolate, you know, any kind of sort of products that were, again, difficult to buy for the GDR because it had to buy them on the world market, which was, was difficult to access for it. And the government was perfectly happy with that. It accepted the, the fact that people you know, basically then fell into either one or the other category. Either they had access to Western currency or they didn't. And if they did, then, then they could buy stuff there. I have a lady in my, in my book who I use as an example who loved pineapple. You know, and it's such a simple thing when you think like tin pineapple, which I'm sure lots of people in Britain had kind of as dessert in the 70s as well as sort of tin. Yeah, I wish I hadn't as well. <laughs> and that just was, a, you know, she loved it. But because, again, it's an exotic fruit, doesn't grow in East Germany, had to be bought, bought on the world market, it was extortionately expensive. And every now and then she'd sort of treat herself when her Western uncle had, like, sent enough money over bit by bit. She'd kind of save it all up to go go to the intershop and buy herself a, a tin of, of pineapple. And that was sort of the treat, you know. So there, there's wow. some truth to that, certainly. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the next Rager question now. And this one has been submitted by one of our earliest Ragers, actually, Derek Moss. So thank you very much, Derek. And Derek says, as I understand it, your family stayed in the East after the wall came down. Do you know the reasons your parents had for that? Yeah, I mean, they did. I did. We did. Most people did, in fairness, whilst there was a huge exodus. And is that's still a problem in the East today, is that young people like myself, I suppose, <laughs> move away to, to sort of, you know, find find a better find better, better prospects elsewhere. If you didn't have to, you normally didn't. I mean, it's easier for young people because they haven't really got kind of commitments there yet, you know, in terms of children going to school or you've got a job or whatever. You can kind of move away once you've finished school and that's easier to do than it is for, for older people who may have, you know, very good reasons to stay, not least because it's their home. So... Mm-hmm. You know, the vast majority of people stayed. It would be, it would be a more valid question, I think, if, or it would be a more interesting question to ask kind of why people go, because that's quite a big decision to make to sort of pack your bags and leave your, your home where you may have lived potentially for generations, you know, in the same region. There was just no reason to really for, for us to, to do that. And also, you know, bearing in mind that people were cut off from West Germany. It was basically a foreign country. So it took a took a lot of bravery, which young people obviously have because they're you know they're looking for adventure and to, to do new things. But if you're a bit older or middle aged and you've got small children as, as my parents did, you know, you don't want to uproot everybody for the sake of, you know, trying to see if it's better or different elsewhere. My yeah. mum was also allowed because she'd only just finished her teacher training. I think she was done in nineteen eighty eight, maybe, around about that sort of time. So she was kind of not, hadn't been in the job for long enough to be sort of deemed, you know, it wasn't necessary for her to completely retrain. She also had to go back to university and do another kind of teaching degree, but there was a chance to kind of continue in the same job and and carry on. 
which is what she did. She's still a teacher now, so there, there was really no reason for, for her to leave. And my dad had to leave the army in any case because they basically said that he could have. So he was an officer in the, in the Air Force in East Germany. And the Bundeswehr, the, the West German army, offered to keep him on a, on a temporary contract. That was quite often the case. So they kind of offer them a couple of years or so. And, and then it was usually understood that you'd then left and this kind of just gave you enough time to, to find something else to do. That always came with some sort of caveat. And in the case of my dad, as they did with lots of people, the, the, the caveat would have been that they could have stationed him anywhere. Um, in the country yeah. and then basically you are in a situation where you know I was I was a small child uh, my sister was born in 1990 so you know she's literally a, a baby at the time you know do you risk that you might have to go somewhere completely different my mum would then have had to interrupt her career um, to, to try and find out whether or not they would have allowed her to teach in West Germany I think is a completely different proposition altogether so there were lots of reasons to kind of just stay put and and carry on, and that's effectively what, what they did. Earlier, you mentioned that you were only four years old when the wall came down. So what can you remember of that event, and how much of the Cold War divide between the two Germanies still exists? So I described that in the book deliberately, because I, I sort of bring myself in at that point, four-year-old four little Katya kind of watching the world around her dissolve. The only reason I'd say that that is stuck very clearly in my mind that time period is because it, it kind of coincided with a with a family outing. So on the 7th of October each year, the, the GDR celebrated its anniversary, its birthday, effectively, which was the 7th of October 1949. So in 1989, the 7th of October was the 40th anniversary of the GDR. And the regime being what it was, it, it decided to ignore all of the protests and the, the upheaval in the country and carry on. And Gorbachev was invited and there was supposed to be a grand sort of celebration, but also the public had the day off, you know, as a, as a celebration day. And it was unseasonably warm, really nice weather. And so a lot of families, including my own, decided to just use the day for a family outing. And we decided mm -hmm. to go to Berlin and go up on the TV tower because it was quite spectacular. It still is. If you, if you are ever in Berlin, do try and go yep. up there. <laughs> but basically, even at the time, you know, it was even more impressive because it was just so futuristic. Like you'd, you'd go up in the, in the elevator. And then once you're up in the, in the viewing platform, that sort of slowly rotates and shows you the whole panorama of Berlin. So I was quite excited about that. And we went, we went and went up there and my dad was buying drinks from there was like a fancy kind of restaurant in the in the center of the viewing platform and I was sort of stood there at the panorama windows looking down four years old totally in awe of the of the little mini city that was that was there underneath me and I saw lots and lots of people coming towards the Alexanderplatz which is the big square at the at the foot of the tv tower and I was getting very excited about that and turned around to my dad and said, you know, look, that all of these people are coming towards us. It's like we're in the middle of an anthill, you know, they're all kind of crawling around. And he just ignored me, <laughs> as, as I suppose he would do. And then I said, I shouted, but look, there's lots of police cars as well. And at that point, I had his attention and he turned around and looked down and because he was in a, you know, as I said, in the, in the Air Force himself. So you recognize the different uniforms and things so you recognize them as the the barracks people's police which basically is like a para, paramilitary armed police units effectively so what happened was that these were the the big protests that were going on at the time in in berlin and the government was clearly expecting 
trouble and readying itself to respond. And there was absolutely no telling whether or not that you know this was going to be peaceful because obviously in hindsight we know that it, it was comparatively peaceful. But at the same time, the government had been talking about a Chinese solution, you know, sort of alluding to the Tiananmen Square massacre that had happened briefly before that or shortly before that. So there was real fear. And my dad being up there with his four-year-old daughter and his wife, my mum was pregnant at the time with my sister. So he was genuinely worried about all of us and basically dragged us back into the lift and we went back down into the Trabant and and drove home as, as quickly as we could. And I... The reason that that stayed with me, despite my young age, I think, is almost like, you know, one of those still images that you have in your minds of of kind of really intense memories, is because of the amount of confusion, excitement, anxiety, all of this kind of weird mix of of feelings that was there. It created a very strange atmosphere. And as a child, you're normally used to your parents knowing everything and, and kind of just being calm and you know, something that seems a total catastrophe to you as a small child, your parents just sort it out in an instant and and it's fine. And I remember the kind of disconcerting feeling that my parents didn't know what was going on and that was something that sort of stuck with me. So that that is the memory that I that I have of that. Okay, and then into the into the we get unification, we get the we get the fall of the wall. I alluded at the start, it was there was very much a divide there when I went across. How much of that divide between the people how much of two Germanys is still around? It's recently become a huge thing again. And my, my book kind of accidentally, I hadn't obviously, I didn't know that that was going to happen at the same time, but, but fell into a renewed and very acrimonious debate exactly about that topic. It's interesting that in the book, I start, start off the book with an episode about Angela Merkel, where when she left office as chancellor in 2021, she talks about that issue. And she basically says that, as an East German herself, you know, she doesn't want her life written off as, as ballast, as people had called it, kind of something dark and heavy that you just shrug off, you know, a whole life that you just shrug off and then and then pretend it never happened. And she was complaining about that and said her life's always in the GDR has always been seen as kind of this dark secret that she couldn't talk about. And that's interesting that she only did that in 2021. I mean, she'd been the Chancellor for 16 years and, and been in politics really since the early 90s. And just never really made a big thing out of being East German. And Mm. then she started talking about it. And at the same time, more books came out, my generation in particular, but also lots of older people who started talking about their lives in the GDR and said, you know, we don't want this completely written off as kind of this, this dark chapter that one doesn't speak about. There's even this term in German that was used around the unification period by West Germans. They called East Germany Dunkeldeutschland, so the dark Germany. Yeah. Which was just a derogatory term for it. The the states that, for instance, the one that I grew up in Brandenburg, that they're, they're still called the new states. You know, like new to who? <laughs> it's a unified country, <laughs> and you're sort of sitting there in a in a new state that you know older people had lived in for decades. <laughs> it's not new to them. So there was yeah. there was a feeling, I think, for a long time that these it wasn't really taken seriously how much upheaval this meant for East Germans. I mean, even if you came out better and most people did and most people say today their lives are better today and and you know they're not nostalgic about east germany in the sense that they want it back but what they're saying is that their lives changed completely and turned upside down and there was no understanding from west germans who continued as normal what that actually meant to change your career to have everything questioned that you ever did 
Uh, people had to retrain their jobs. It was always Western companies that came over and bought up Eastern companies or advisors that were brought in to tell East Germans how to do their jobs, those kinds of things. And, and it just grated on people over the years, I think. And now it's become a huge thing again, where the, the anger is also shown in, in political voting with extremist parties and other things. There, there's just a huge amount of disgruntlement out there where that problem certainly isn't solved. And every time I talk about this, well, when I started talking about the book in Germany, you still got a lot of people rolling their eyes and saying, do you have to start with this topic again? You know, it's over 30 years now. Like East Germans, why don't you just get over this? <laughs> people are like, get over what? You know, your your existence really as a, uh, as a people. <laughs> and there, there's also a sense that there's not enough representation, for instance, at political level. Figures that came out recently in, in another book showed that it was something like one point something percent of leadership positions in Germany are actually occupied by, by East Germans. So not a lot. And those that are in those positions, like myself, by the way, have kind of got rid of their East Germanness in lots of ways. So for instance, the fact that East Germans normally spoke in a very broad dialect because that was encouraged as part of the sort of working class culture that people were trying to highlight as opposed to middle classness, you know, similar with, with sort of yeah. accents in the UK. So everyone was kind of encouraged to speak in their local accent, and people did. And I, for instance, have naturally have a very, very broad, like, Berlin accent. So a bit like, I suppose, the equivalent to Cockney, you know, it's like a working class Berlin accent. Yeah. And when I went to university, you very quickly learned to, to get rid of that, if you could, or otherwise people would just not take you seriously. So, you know, I spent ages trying to kind of speak a clear high German, the equivalent, I suppose, to, you know, a middle-class accent here, or even yeah. RP, I suppose, you know, if you, if you overdo it. But you end up kind of hiding where you're from, in a way, and lots of people naturally did that in the 90s and early 2000s, because they realized that that's what they had to do. And now there's a backlash where people said, well, why should we? How, how come Bavarians are allowed to speak? in a Bavarian accent, even when they're politicians, they're, they're not trying to get rid of that. Rhinelanders are very, very proud of their culture and their background. And yet, if you're from Dresden and you speak in a broad Saxon accent, which is, I suppose, reputationally the same as a maybe a Bromley accent, you know, people kind of think you're a bit <laughs> slow, you're a bit sort of, you know, it's, it's not it's not the most sexy accent, let's put it like that. Apologies to our <laughs> listeners in Birmingham out there, but... <laughs> <laughs> they probably do the same thing and hide it when they go into public. Yeah, no, but that's that's kind of the the situation that that everybody's at. Is that there's a feeling that you still don't quite belong into the society and into politics and into public life in the way that West Germans do. Well, well, thank you very much, Katix. That was that was a refreshing and massive insight into an often hidden and quite frankly over propagandized world on on both sides of that divide. So. So thank you very much. Have you have you enjoyed getting that off your chest? Yeah, very much so. It's <laughs> always very cathartic as, as it was last time as well. You're always welcome back with anything else that might piss you off as <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, you might want to put some limits on that offer. <laughs> there are lots of things that annoy me. Well, if you would like to know more about Cold War East Germany, then you should start by buying and reading the excellent book Beyond the Wall. We will have a link to that in the History Rage bookshop, and you can and should also follow Katya on Twitter, because I still refuse to call it X, at Hoya underscore Kat. Uh, but once again, Katya, thank you very much for bringing a unified History Rage. <laughs> thank you for having me. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we would really appreciate any reviews you could leave for us with Apple, Podchaser or Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you are loving History Rage, then why not support us by joining us on Patreon? This really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.